sad we live in a world where blood feasts can be presented in blood color. Me too. Because it's more grisly than ever. Oh, yeah. Introducing playmate Connie Mason. Oh. A Friedman Lewis production. A beautiful production it was. Yes. The tale of Fuad Ramses and his blood feast. Have you seen Blood Diner? No. Is it a Blood Feast remake? Sort of. Not like directly. I know Tyler said he really liked it. It's really good. You should definitely watch it. All right, I'm going to watch Blood Diner. You are going to do this podcast. Okay, well. Pull up my plex and don't be disturbed by the sounds of blood dining while you're trying to work. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome to the Raincoat Report. This is Boss here with Jeremy. Hello. Uh, We're going to listen to Jeremy watch Blood Diner for the next 90 minutes. Yeah. It's going to be a little longer episode, but I think it's going to be worth it (laughs) in the end. Uh, While I watch Blood Diner, Boss will be telling you about the famous pornography of the Golden Age. Indeed, and this is uh, a week where we get to talk about one of the uh, crown jewels of the late era of the Golden Age of Pornography. Because uh, today we're talking about 1984's Matinee Idol. We sure are. Uh, directed by Henri Pichard yes. and written and produced by David Friedman. Yes, uh, the, the great David Friedman. The boy who lived. <laughs> yes, that's what he's best known for. <laughs> he's best known as the boy who lived. Yeah. He defeated um, Voldemort and all those guys. Oh, yeah. But... Uh, Who's your favorite fat actor? It's a close tie between John Goodman and Elmo Lovino. It's a good good two to pick. Those are good. Uh, I watched First Blood, and uh, Brian Dennehy's in that, and he's fat, but he's also, like, shaped like a big brick. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, right now, Brian Dennehy's probably my favorite one. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, it's a solid choice. Yeah, he should have been nicer to Rambo, but overall... Well, he learned his lesson in the end. He sure did. He died. He shouldn't Sorry. have drawn first blood. Yeah. If they drew first blood, it's my Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Thanks. Uh, I've been drinking to get it just slurry enough. Just slurry enough. Can't keep a job washing cars. <laughs> Is that better? Yes, that's excellent. Thank you. Uh, it's going to come in handy when I play him in a biopic. <laughs> I would love to see and it's even bio- direct that biopic. It's a biopic of John Rambo, not of Sylvester Stallone. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's even better. Yeah, we're going to reinterpret the events as if they actually happened. I love it. Thank you. So uh, yeah, we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about Matinee Idol today, which unfortunately does not star Sylvester Stallone. Although it, we should watch the Italian Stallion at one point. We should. It does have Elmo Lovino. It does have Elmo Lovino as uh, Harvey Cox. Yes. Uh, alongside t- writer producer David Friedman, who is Bernard Kuntz. Yes. Um, I'm going to do the presentation this week because normally you'll talk a little bit about whoever wrote it or made it Um, okay and i prepared excellent with a little help from uh 
my buddies, Cathal to- to- Toehill, Toehill, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a pseudonym. And uh, David Flint of the uh, Sheer Filth Zine, they wrote and uh, interviewed, they wrote like a little piece and interviewed him back in, the, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s. So I did a little bit of research. He's got okay. a pretty interesting life. Uh, he got his start in show business doing carny shit. Like uh, This know. is David Friedman. Yes, this is David Friedman, not uh, any of the other names that I said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he got to start doing uh, carny stuff uh, during school. He would work as a stagehand and projectionist when they would show like little like film strips and stuff and like the tents and everything. And he had he had his own little uh, like sideshow thing, which was uh, like his own little draw. He had a pickled punk, which was a uh, an embryo in a jar. Ooh, yeah, fancy. Yeah, something to uh, draw in the rubes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he did that uh, mostly like in the uh, '30s. In the '40s, he kind of drifted around a bit. He went to college. He was in the army. He ended up working for Paramount in their publicity department for a little bit. In the early 50s, he meets Kroger Babb, who is a, like, super legendary exploitation, like, producer, promoter. Mm-hmm. Not to get too much into him, but uh, there's a good John Waters kind of, like, stand-up lecture special, and he talks about him a lot. But uh, Babb's big thing was showing uh, birth films. Like, Mom and Dad, which is a way you could get to show, like, sex in some way and, like, the vagina. But also, you'd have to see a child being born. Right. Uh, So, it's not great. Right. So, uh, he kind of associates him with a little bit and mostly kind of learns how to, like, use some of that carny skill to, like, make ad campaigns that are really eye-catching. Right. And uh, from working with Bab in the 50s, he goes on to meet a little guy called uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, famous schlock man, nudie, cutie, uh, kingpin. Yes. Uh, they get together and work on, uh, I believe it was the Adventures of Lucky Pierre was yeah. the first one they did. Um, and they made a string of nudie cuties after that until the market for that kind of hit, it finally hit like a downturn. Right. But there's another market coming up, and that market was blood. Yes, indeed. Um, and he worked with Herschel on like three of like I guess probably like his biggest films. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Blood Feast, uh, Two Thousand Maniacs, which is great. I think it's a better film than Blood Feast, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of like the story and the pacing and everything. Right. Apparently, it didn't do as well like in theaters. I guess Blood Feast is a much more uh, evocative name. I think. Yeah. Uh, and then he worked on uh, Color Me Blood Red, which I have not seen yet. I have <clears throat> not seen that one yet. It's almost two hours, which is one of those things where I'll just be like, oh, I'll get to it at some point when I have two hours. Yeah, I've seen a few other Herschel Gordon Lewis films, but I haven't. And I've seen Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, but I haven't seen Color Me Blood Red. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, their partnership eventually kind of dissolves. And he heads west to L.A. where he makes more uh, sexploitation films at the time. Uh, uh-huh. Stuff like uh, like The Defilers, uh, The Notorious Daughter of Fanny Hill, A Smell of Honey, A Swallow of Brine. <laughs> stuff like that. 
was out in L.A. that he met uh, Bob Cress, who was like another studio guy, like mm-hmm. a small time studio guy. And they kind of had a, a sort of friendly li- rivalry, it seemed like. They teamed up eventually to make uh, Love Camp 7, which was uh, like an early sort of like Nazi exploitation, like women in prison type thing. Yeah. Eventually, and this is cool, I didn't know this, from uh, the from Making Love Camp 7, he did some other stuff you know, between then and there, but, uh, some producers in Canada contacted him about making a film that was similar to Love Camp 7. Uh, do you know what film that is? No. It's Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, which Ooh. he produced under a, uh, fake name, uh, Herman Trigar. Uh, he bankrolled and, like, arranged everything and had known, like, Diane Thorne from Burlesque. Nice. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that his, uh, tendrils reach all the way back to like the beginning of cinema like up to like one of probably the sleaziest productions of the 70s right and then from there he did a little more uh mostly sex stuff like trader horny uh and uh there's some there's posters for a couple of them in the film uh starlet which this film we're talking about is basically a remake of huh yeah i think i'd originally kind of propose we do like a double episode and talk about both movies as like episode 50 but then episode 50 was in the middle of june uh, and at this point i also just don't want to watch two movies at the same time right uh so i think just focusing on this one is good and this matinee idol was uh basically the last film he worked on uh i think like a lot of the old sexploitation guys like once things started getting too into the hardcore uh business he kind of found it repetitive and he says it took like a lot more work to like get the product done and it just wasn't as much fun because there were so many more rules like surrounding like the production of pornography right like where and how you could shoot it than there were just like i guess the films where you could just like find like a nudist volleyball camp right yeah Uh, That's pretty much it for the little biographical overview of uh, Friedman. I'm sure I left out some stuff, but in the bits that I read, those were uh, some of the more uh, titillating and interesting facts that came to my attention. Yeah. Very full life. Definitely uh, something you've seen and loved has probably been touched by him in uh, some way or another. So, uh it's good to get some of this nice crossover with like kind of the mainstream world. Like we saw uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, James Bryan, who's not right. really necessarily mainstream, but like you have a porn theater and one uh, theater on like uh, 42nd street and then have uh, like revenge, a lady street fighter, like down the road or something like that. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to see that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's nice. Yeah, David Friedman's definitely a legend in the exploitation film space for sure. And uh, he's had his hands on a lot of stuff, so that's a pretty awesome uh, overview of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could probably talk for hours about him, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good run-through of things. Thank you. Uh, He died at some point. I don't know when. 2011. Uh, And the good Lord took him from us. Yes. The year 2011, I think. The same year Macho Man died. That might be. That sounds about right. What a rough year. I know. It's tough. I'm surprised we all made it through. Except for Macho Man and David Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So yeah, David Friedman, of course, uh, wrote and uh, produced this. But we also have quite a cast of characters involved. Of course, the director was Henri Pichard, a.k.a. Yeah. Ron Sullivan. A.k.a. the bum in Pretty Peaches 3. <laughs> he, of course, directed Public Affairs, which we've talked about. But we have a, quite a cast here. Of course, as we mentioned, we have David Friedman and Elmo Lavino as the uh, producers here, Bernard Kuntz and Harvey Cox. Um, but we have our leads in the film, played by John Leslie, Lance Hardy, and uh, Linda Hand, played by Jesse St. James. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have Herschel Savage, Angel, Kay Parker, Colleen Brennan. Yeah, it's good. The star-studded affair of some of like the newer names and some of the older names together. Yeah. At kind of the end of the first uh, golden age of pornography. Yeah. It's nice. It's kind of a sort of a sweet film in a way yeah yeah i I really enjoyed it i'm gonna i think we're gonna have fun talking about it yeah so we'll uh get into it so let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk more about matinee idol now lance the media has never commented in interviews on how uh big you are any comment look i don't think about that i never measured it uh it's uh i guess it's pretty good in fact it's great you know they're all big on screen well, do you enjoy your sex scenes with co-star Linda Hand? Well, Linda Hand's the studio's top female star. That's why we work together. And do you get together off camera? Uh, Linda and I have our own private lives. So the only time we're together is when we're shooting. <laughs> I like this long pause. Leave all this in. <laughs> uh, I thought you were gonna start, but you never, you never started. It's okay. It's okay. Sometimes podcasting is difficult. It can be when you're at a loss for words, and that's all you have. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's just go ahead and get into it. <laughs> so, Matinee Idol opens with a billboard for sensational entertainment with an eye. Entertainment with an eye. Uh, with pictures of. Uh, B. Kuntz and H. Cox on the uh, billboard. We cut to inside a studio where we see the crew working, setting up cameras and stuff. Off to the side, Lance Hardy is being interviewed by a reporter. Mm -hmm. She asks something about how big he is and asks if he enjoys working with Linda. uh, Linda Hand, his famous co-star. Yes. He says that She's a big star, and she asks if they get together often off-screen, and he says they have their own private lives, so they just see each other at work. Uh, Lance tries to ask the reporter out on a date, and she says she can't just as the director comes up and says that he's needed. Lance Hardy goes over and sits on the bed next to Linda Hart, who's already there. Linda starts laying into him about how big of a box office star he thinks he is she says if your cock was as hard as your head we'd be in business the director says something to linda about how she's supposed to be a nymphomaniac but she's just reminding him of his wife (laughs) so uh they get started shooting their scene and lance whispers something in linda's ear yes they call action and she starts to stroke lance and then gets down and starts blowing him he says, that's good. 
And then he jumps in pain as she bites him. And then we get our matinee idol title card. Uh, and some establishing shots around Hollywood as we get the credits. Yeah, we get a shot of like the Pussycat Theater. Yeah. Uh, there's a poster for Indiana Jones, I think. Oh, yeah. It's probably Temple of Doom based on the time frame. Uh, not my favorite Indiana Jones by a long shot, but, you know, it's nice to see. I saw that the most as a kid, so I have kind of an attachment to it. I saw Last Crusade a lot, uh, but mostly like the first 15 minutes when he was just like whipping animals on a train. <laughs> After that, my interest waned. We see Koontz and Cox in their office taking a phone call about the biting incident. Cox tells them to stop acting like prima donnas and finish the fucking movie. He says they won't make another film if they don't stop this. So after hanging up the phone, Cox tells Koontz that Lance said something to irritate Linda and she bit his cock. Koontz says Lance Hardy, boy asshole. Koontz seems to be into replacing Lance, saying there's got to be another guy with a big dick, a pretty face... Able to come on command. Yeah, that's all you need. But Cox reminds him about how valuable he is. Kuntz says that he's going to put out a casting call to replace him, but Cox reminds him that they've already taken advances on a new hardy hand picture, so they better make one. We see Linda on the phone, uh, taking a phone call from her friend Ginger. She's relaxing by the pool. Afterwards, she starts to read some fan mail, and this guy wrote her talking about getting kicked out of a theater for jerking off and asked her for a picture. Yeah. Um, did he say he snuck back into the theater and jerked off again? Uh, I don't recall. Oh, perhaps. he did. He should have. <laughs> he got off pretty light, though. Uh, Pee Wee Herman, I think, went to jail. Yeah. Well, for... they wanted to make a, an example out of him. It's fucked up. You have the right to jerk off in this country, especially in a theater designed for it. Yeah, that's freedom of expression. Yeah. And expulsion. And the right to come. Yes. Which is in one of the amendments, I think. Yeah, it's the 69th Amendment. <laughs> yes. Linda's doorbell rings and she goes to answer it. And it's the pool boy, Bud Cochran. This is played by Herschel Savage. Yes. He says that he's here to service her. I mean the pool. He corrects himself. She notes that he's not the usual guy, uh, but she invites him in. And then we see them by the pool. She's oiling herself up on the diving board, and Bud Cochran is just watching her. And they chat a bit as he's getting started. He finally asks her if she's Linda Hand from the movies. She asks if he's seen her movies, and he says that he's seen Good Enough to Eat and Genitals Prefer Blondes. Which aren't. Probably aren't real, but should be. I bet at some point they got made. Yeah. Definitely good enough to eat. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look up genitals prefer blondes. You keep you forge ahead. <laughs> she asks if he's okay if she lays out and gets some sun. He says yes, so she takes off her top and lays on the diving board, and he's just staring at her a bit before he decides to bend down and start to do some work. But then he looks down in the pool... And starts to kind of fade out into a trippy, distorted sequence. Uh, I guess a daydream of some sort. He sees a naked woman swimming around. At first I thought this was Linda, but in fact it is... Uh, it's credited as the Water Nymph, played by Tiger. 
Yeah, I thought it was her too, and it was not. Yeah, it's just Tiger. Uh, we see a bunch of underwater shots of her. It's really kind of trippy and distorted. Yeah, and it's good. We it's... get some hypnotic music along the way. Yeah, it's kind of like that scene in a. It's a pool scene in like Boys in the Sand a little bit. Kind of, yeah. But this one, I think, with had like a fifteen-year jump in technology, yeah. so it's a. Uh, it looks a little bit better. Sure. But it, it it's a really well done scene, and yeah, uh, the music in this film it makes its presence known. Yeah. It's not like intrusive, like in the way pulsating flesh is, but it's very busy. Yeah. Like there's always like electric guitars or like some like synthy like drum beats or yeah, like th- blurbs of noise. Yeah, I think that like this one kind of starts kind of trippy and subtle, and then after a certain point, an electric guitar kicks in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they start grinding and caressing in the water. We see Bud with her, and uh, eventually, there's this point where he's holding her crotch above the water and going down on her as like her top half is kind of underwater or just floating on top of the water. Uh, then we cut to reality. And Linda's still laying on the diving board, and she asks if Bud can put oil on her, but he doesn't respond. She looks up and looks into the pool, and we just see a, we see Bud floating with his dick out, and his dick's just flexing up and down. <laughs> she asks him if that's part of his normal service, and he gets out. And as they kind of walk into her house, he asks her if she saw someone in the water with him, and she says no. So uh, he just had a crazy hallucination. Yeah, Bud ate like an eighth of mushrooms before he came to work today. <laughs> so he just didn't expect to run into a porn star today. Yeah, he didn't expect to actually have to clean any pools either. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it wouldn't go well for him, I think. So uh, they lay down on her bed, and she starts to undress, and they make out. She starts to blow him and keeps at it for a bit before mounting him cowgirl. The music starts to kick into some heavier 80s rock as she starts riding him. They um, So they switch to doggy style, and he starts to fuck her in that position. But the shot's interesting because we can see some light shining through his scrotum skin. Yeah. Like the translucent uh, part of his skin where it's kind of thinner. We then cut to Cox and Kuntz uh, watching a woman... Who I thought was masturbating, but it turns out she's, like, picking up the radio with her vagina. Yeah, she's got... That's her skill. It's, like, a, her talent. So, they're going through these auditions looking for a new leading lady. And uh, they're going through everybody's special talents, like picking up the radio with their vagina. Yeah. Uh, they've got Dorothy with them, their secretary, played by Kay Parker. We see one girl after another and a bunch of tits and stuff like that. A couple one-liners and stuff. But uh, they see Daisy, played by Angel, Mm -hmm. and are uh, a bit stricken with her after being kind of disappointed with most of the auditions. So they call her back. Kuntz calls her Buttercup at first, but then she corrects him and says it's Daisy. He says they want her to come back to test for a part next Thursday. After she leaves, Kuntz makes a note that Cox should see his tailor. Because uh, Cox is uh, wearing a ridiculous suit. Yes, it's, it's a big old suit. Back to Linda with Bud. She says that he should be in fuck films. 
So in response, Bud asks if she wants another audition, and she says that's exactly what she had in mind. So they uh, lean in like they're going to do it again. But we cut back to Cox and Kuntz's office, and we see Dorothy, again Kay Parker's character, laying on Cox's desk while Lance is going down on her. He then pulls out his cock and starts stroking and then stands up and starts to fuck her on the desk. He's wearing a jacket that says screw on the back. It says screw for the fun of it. So I assume that's for Screw Magazine, probably. I think you're right. I missed that detail, but that's very good. The phone starts ringing as he's pounding away, and then he pulls out and finishes, though we don't actually see the cum shot. But as Dorothy's getting up, she says that he spilled cum on Mr. Cox's desk. He tells her that she should wipe some on Mr. Kuntz's desk, too, and leaves. Uh, She says thanks to him as he walks out, but then she turns back around to get her panties off the desk. I thought she was turning back around to clean up the cum. She did not. (laughs) No, no one's cleaning the cum off the boss's desk. We cut back to the studio, and we see Daisy laying on a round bed uh, there for her audition. Lance walks in, and the director, who is Phil, played by Ray Michaels... Uh, The director gives him a hard time, telling him that he's late. Lance looks over at Daisy and then apologizes for being late. So then the director tells Daisy to get him hard, and she says, Huh? Lance criticizes uh, Phil's approach. Phil asks if they told her what to expect, and then describes graphically that something to the effect of he's going to thrust his erect member in her moist opening... But first, he must achieve an erection. She asks what he wants her to do, and he lists off things like tickling his asshole, titty-fucking him, and uh, whatnot. Lance tells everybody to go away, and then starts to talk more gently to Daisy. He suggests thinking about, like, when she would make love to a boyfriend in the past. Lance says that he'll teach her everything she has to know. He asks her if she's sucked cock before, and she says, yes, kinda. She reaches over and starts to kind of stroke Lance and remarks about how big his cock is. But then she finally starts blowing him as some jazzy music kicks in. This is where I noticed what you had pointed out in a prior episode, that there seems to be this weird loop of skin... Like, right below the glands on his dick. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, like, left over from, like, the circumcision or what, but... Maybe it's uh, the result of some sort of on-the-job injury. I hope not. That's bad for him. But, yeah, I don't feel like I noticed it in some of the other stuff he's been in, but it became more prominent once I noticed it. Yeah. Well, and I think it's subtle enough to be able to be missed. Yeah. Um, But not when you backlight it. (laughs) Yeah. She says it's like sucking an ice cream cone, and he talks her through it a bit. He tells her it's not so hard, she just has to relax. So after a minute, Phil's satisfied that Lance is hard and tells everybody to get ready and calls action. So they make out and undress more. He picks up her panties and talks about how they were just wrapped around her ass and pussy, and he starts to suck on them as they chit-chat and joke around a bit. Clearly there's some chemistry here between the two of them. The scene works out pretty well. Uh, he starts to fuck her missionary as the music gets more guitar-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, he holds her leg up a bit and puts it down and keeps at it. He gets up and she blows him some more. Uh, he starts to wave his dick around in front of her mouth a bit. Uh, and then he grabs her hair and starts to move her head on his cock for a bit. 
Uh, then he starts to wag his dick back and forth while it's in her mouth, and she makes, like, bubbly sounds <laughs> for a bit. Um, he finally pulls out and comes in and around her mouth, and she strokes him a bit more and smiles at the end. Phil calls cut and likes the scene. Lance says that she's a natural. So we cut to Linda at her place, and Ginger shows up. Ginger's played by Colleen Brennan. Ginger asks Linda how the biggest cock in Hollywood is. And Linda tells her she's never going to work with Lance again. Ginger notes that's going to be hard, but Linda says she's found a new leading man and introduces Ginger to Bud as he walks in. Ginger says that she's going to love casting him. Bud asks, oh, do you work for the studio? But Linda explains that she's going to make a plaster cast of his cock. Bud says no, but Linda says it's not going to hurt. He calls them degenerates. Uh, He's very resistant, but they're very insistent. Yes. Ginger apparently has everything she needs to make casts with her. Starts mixing stuff in a bowl. He tells them it better not hurt, and they joke with him about it. Uh, He says he'll never get hard now, but they work together to prove him wrong by starting to blow him. Yes, uh, it's very effective. Uh, After a bit, we cut to them holding a plaster mold over his dick. He asks how he's supposed to stay hard, and Ginger says to watch close, because he'll never see anything like this again. Indeed, he may not. So they take off their bottoms and explain they're going to fuck his toes, and they do. Yes. They just kind of pull his feet up and kind of squat and start to bounce on his toes. Yes. This is how you get a fungal infection. Yes. it's. I feel like this would be so distracting I wouldn't be able to keep my erection. <laughs> I would be thinking too hard about it. <laughs> uh, at one point, one of them says, Ooh, you give good toe, baby. <laughs> then Ginger starts to go down on Linda Uh, Unfortunately, Bud gets too hard watching this, and the mold just breaks from his dick getting harder. It just explodes right off his dick. Ginger tells Linda how to mix more plaster, and she starts to blow him a bit while Linda preps. She strokes him with her tits a bit, and then she gets on top in cowgirl and starts to fuck him. Ginger, while riding, asks Linda to give her the dildo in the bag. Yeah. It's like a 18-incher. <laughs> it's yeah. a big old one. Yeah, it's in the members-only bags. It's only for members. Yes. Like dildos. <laughs> I thought she was going to stuff it in her ass, but she actually just stuffs it in her pussy yep. while Bud is also in there. Yep, good double penetration. Yeah, some, uh, some DV. Yeah, yep, some DV. DVDP. Double vaginal double penetration. Yes. After a bit, Bud comes, and then Ginger says, I guess we'll have to get him hard again. (laughs) Cut to Linda walking into Cox and Kuntz's office, and she pulls out a gift box and opens it up, and there's a dildo in it that I guess is supposed to be Bud's cock, but it just kind of looks like a generic dildo. Yeah. Cox tells Kuntz to talk to Linda about this, uh, but tells him that he's going down to the Nazi sex slave company to see how they're doing. I assume this is a production and not a company. No. uh, Yeah, it's probably a riff on the Love Camp uh, Ilsa thing. A little knowing wink. Yeah. 
As Cox leaves, Kuntz says, I love him like a brother, but I really wish he'd see my tailor. <laughs> Linda starts to pitch the need for a new cock for the studio. She says that it's Bud Cochran, and then she says, actually, it's Longstreet Cochran. He says that they could do a screen test tomorrow, and Kuntz says, if only he hadn't married Bertha all these years ago, talking to Linda, uh, I guess trying to say that he would want to be with Linda, kind of flirtatiously. We cut to the next day, and Linda introduces Bud to Phil, the director, he says that he'll be working with Daisy today, so Bud and Daisy are introduced. We cut to the screen test, and Phil says not to look too nervous, and at first Bud does look pretty nervous here. But Daisy leans in and starts to kiss him, and he seems to get comfortable pretty quick. Uh, he lays Daisy down and starts to caress her and then fingers her a bit and starts to eat her out. He goes down on her pretty good as she's tweaking her nipples, and then he climbs over her chest and she starts to blow him while she fingers herself. After a bit, she climbs on top for some cowgirl as the music starts to get heavier. Uh, she was wearing this weird red knit tasseled thing uh -huh. uh, that was kind of sort of covering her boobs, but not really, but she ends up taking it off here. Uh, we see some sideways fucking, and she climbs on top for some reverse cowgirl, though uh, Bud's doing much of the fucking from below. She pulls him out and strokes him to finish at the end, sucking it a bit more for good measure. We cut to a theater, and Cox and Kuntz are watching the screen test with Linda. Kuntz says they should make him the lead with Linda in the next film, and Cox again reminds him that their distributors have already paid for another Hand Hardy film. Yeah, and there's a good sex angle when they're doing uh, the Herschel Angel sex screen, like when she's like sucking him, uh -huh. and it's like from like between her legs and like kind of like pointed up. Uh -huh. so you see a lot of everything. It's very nicely done. Excellent stuff. Yes, very. Uh, it's a attention to detail. That's what's important, and Henri Pichard definitely has that in a way that a lot of directors don't. Yeah, like that sweat drop. Yeah. Similar to that, but not as sweaty. <laughs> not as moist. So in response to the whole fact that they have to make another hand-hardy film, Linda says, fine, but this is the last one. And after that, Bud is her leading man, and she leaves. Cox talking to Kuntz makes a comment about how their brains are between their legs, and Kuntz says they just don't understand the attraction they have for one another. Cox agrees, saying the studio's success has been because of their work together. Then we see Lance at a restaurant meeting with a man and woman. This is Doris and Walter. They explain they know that he's working with the studio, but they're pitching an idea to him, which is that he write a book giving sex advice for women. Doris came up with the idea, and Walter, who is Doris's husband, will publish. Walter tells Doris to uh, take Lance home and they can go over ideas. We cut to Lance sitting on the couch, apparently in Doris and Walter's home. Uh, Doris is sitting on the arm of the couch next to him, but she immediately starts making moves on him, and he's kind of taken aback and starts to slide away from her. She says she's going to slip into something... And then pauses and he says, more comfortable? And she says, more expressive. She walks away and he starts to say to himself, I should go. But then he kind of goes back and forth and says, maybe I should stay. 
No, I should go. And then finally he decides he'll stay. She shows back up in leather lingerie with a black mask on her face and chains around her neck and a flogger. <laughs> Uh, and this is a scene that I wanted to see, but unfortunately, Lance did not. So uh, she tells him to relax and says she'll do everything. But he says that he's got to get out of here and leaves. <laughs> As he leaves, she says, what a bad sport. Yeah, absolutely. No fun at all. I don't even think that John Leslie could write a book. Perhaps not. I don't know. <laughs> he is a dog walker for what it's worth. You don't need to write, be able to write a book to walk a dog. Perhaps. Well, I think the idea was probably... You're the book on dog walking. Probably Doris was going to do most of the actual writing. Yeah. So more like more likely. Yeah. Yeah. Ghost but uh, he was going to have sex advice for women. Yeah. Because I'm sure that for women, he would be the best place to go for sex advice. Definitely. I could see that being a as a marketing scheme, though. Yeah, have the so the sexy guy who's apparently very popular in oh, this yeah. world. Yeah, that's another. In, I'm going to talk about. I'll talk about that in my review. That's an interesting detail. So we cut to Koontz and Cox, and they're finishing dictating a letter to Dorothy. Lance runs into her as she's leaving the office, and they exchange some flirtatious words. Koontz and Cox tell Lance that they want him to finish Matinee Idol with Linda, and of course. To be clear, Matinee Idol is the project they're working on now, yes. in addition to the name of this film. Yeah, don't get confused. There's a film within the film with the same title as the film. Yes, it's um, a real Macbeth situation. That was, or it's real Hamlet. <laughs> that was the name of the play in Hamlet, was Macbeth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lance asks, what about Daisy? They explain they have to do it with both of them in order to recoup their money. They say afterwards, they can just drop Linda. They note they don't need two female stars, and Linda's too old. Lance says they're crazy and starts to stand up for Linda, saying how she could get everyone hard coast to coast, including two old men he knows, referring to Coons and Cox. Oh, yeah. But he says he'll be on set tomorrow. So we cut to the set we saw at the beginning of the film, and it looks like they're going to go ahead and pick up where they last left off when uh, Lance was bitten. Yes. So they start the scene like before with Linda blowing Lance. They start to touch a bit, and she lays down, and he starts to fuck her missionary. There's an exchange of breathy dialogue in this scene. Apparently, I believe he's cucking her husband. Uh, based on what he's saying, I couldn't make out everything, but he's talking about, like, her right. husband can't fuck her like this and all that sort of stuff. There's always a lot of, or at least I feel like in John Leslie films, I feel like there's more dirty talk when he's like on the screen. Yeah. I yeah, like I can see that. That's like his thing. It's a signature that I'm picking up on. Yeah. He did it quite a bit in Dixie Ray and yeah. I think some in Pretty Peaches. Uh yeah, a little bit. I don't remember if he talked much about when he was fucking Kay Parker and Dracula sucks. I can't remember specifically. Yeah, when he was details. fucking his sister, yeah. Kay Parker. Yeah, they were probably just, <laughs> if they were talking, they were probably just talking about like finances of the sanitarium. <laughs> <laughs> but the key to this scene is we start to see that Lance and Linda actually do have quite a bit of chemistry here. Yeah. They're really getting into it and uh So are we. 
and so are we. And just really while they're like kind of peeking at really getting into it, they call cut and have to set up a new camera angle, which is probably kind of a difficult part of doing porn in reality. Yeah, uh, um, especially if you do multiple takes. Yeah. I think that was an issue on uh, opening the Misty Beethoven. I don't know if it was an issue, but, like, we had talked about, like, how many, like, half-given blowjobs that, like, Jamie Gillis had to have received. Oh, yeah, yeah. If the director was like, no, this looks wrong, cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, as they're, as the crew's setting back up, they apologize to each other and uh, seem to be mending things. Uh, they're ready for the next shot, but Lance says that he has to get hard. They note that you just see their faces in the shot, but he starts to get upset, saying he has to be inside her, and he's not shooting that hardcore stuff. So they're like, okay, and they give him a moment, but uh, they talk about how they need to hurry up or they'll go into overtime. So they end up getting going again and do a little more missionary and then switch to doggy, and they really start to get into that, and she starts yelling, fuck me, repeatedly, and to grab her ass. So he really pounds away at her and finally pulls out and comes on her ass. Phil and the rest of the crew applaud after they cut, and Lance and Linda kiss a bit. After Linda gets up, Lance invites her to dinner sometime, and she says that she'd like that. From here, we cut to some shots of the streets of Hollywood and a shot of the Pussycat Theater with Matinee Idol as the marquee Yeah, with Linda hand and uh, lance hardy's names up there and lights up there in lights yes wowie then we see a car pull up to uh what appears to be linda's place and lance and linda get out uh, i believe they just got back from the premiere of this film i would say yeah based on how they're dressed linda tells lance that she's never been happier and lance says if not her, for her bud and daisy would have never met Linda says they have him to thank, too. As they're talking, Lance asks her if she would ever marry him, saying that a hard man's good to find. Yes, that's a great line. She says no. He asks why not, and she says, let me finish. She asks, why would he want her to marry him? He tells her if she said yes, he'd spend the rest of his life telling her why. So they're sharing some champagne, and Linda points out it's the first time they've been alone together. They exchange glances a bit, and we get kind of this moody scene with Linda slowly starting to undress, pulling off her gloves as they're kind of nursing champagne, and Lance slowly unties his tie and removes his jacket, and they both basically slowly undress. As she's finishing undressing, he starts to stroke a bit, and then she starts to masturbate as well, sitting across from each other. As as Lance is sitting there stroking, John Leslie looks quite sweaty and maybe a little cross-eyed. Yeah, he looks berserk. At the end. <laughs> like there's like a moment where he's just completely like out of it. He's left his body, and it's just. <laughs> The eyes are going every which way, and his mouth's just hanging open. I think Beautiful. that, like, all of his body has, fl- has like, uh, pushed the blood into his dick, and that's the only thing that's <laughs> functioning fully. I think you might be right. She stands up and starts to walk away, but then he gets up and pulls her towards him, and they embrace, and she moans a bit as they make out. We then cut to a judge pronouncing Bud and Daisy as man and wife. 
The judge then tells Lance and Linda how much he and his wife love to watch their films. Lance and Linda wave goodbye to Bud and Daisy as they leave. And then they turn around going back toward the judge with Linda pushing Lance forward. Then we cut back to Cox and Koontz in the office and they're taking phone calls separately, both of them. And they're both kind of repeating things they're hearing on the other end, but the key is that they figured out basically that both Bud and Daisy and Lance and Linda got married and are all quitting porn. Yes. And uh, they are devastated because not only do they not have their studio stars, they don't have their backup studio stars that they had just gotten done casting. Yeah, they have nothing. So as they hang... Yeah. (laughs) So as they hang up their phones, Cox and Koontz talk to each other and Kuntz says somewhere in this city somewhere in this whole starstruck town there's got to be another guy with a big dick a pretty face able to come on command Kuntz then turns towards the camera and asks the audience you fella you out there you want to be a matinee idol and then we cut to the end yes and that was matinee idol Sure was a matinee idol. Quite a journey. Idol for the ages. Indeed. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back to give our reviews for Matinee Idol. one thing that holds true you can't stop klaus kinski from getting revenge yeah you can't stop klaus kinski from doing anything he wants to do yeah that's the main takeaway of his life (laughs) (laughs) oh boy so uh welcome back to the raincoat report uh it's time for the raincoat review so jeremy do you want to talk a little bit more about matinee idol i'd love to talk a little bit more about matinee idol um this film, as we said at the beginning, is kind of the like, like the last big hurrah in a way for uh, adult films of the time of that first golden age era. And what that means basically is that video came along like pretty much like the day after it was released, and yeah. uh, like it just kind of shot the whole like doing a big budget, interesting film to shit. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure there's some good stuff on video that we haven't covered really any of that yet because it's not really our forte. But you can definitely tell, like even in like some of like the motion picture productions that we have covered at the time that have been a little more lackluster, that things were kind of starting to uh, cool off a bit. Yeah, yeah. But this film, I think, is a if it has to be the last big one, I don't think it's a bad one. Certainly not for it to be. Uh, it is the last film that Friedman worked on. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, he thought that doing like uh, some of the hardcore, like put more constraints on him and stuff. But I think a review that he said he had read for this one where the uh, reviewer had said that they didn't understand why the f- 
it was being shot like making porn films was like big business or anything. And he was like, well, what's the point if you can't just tell the story you want and like be like try to be like a real film, basically? Right. Uh, was, I think he was just frustrated and that just kind of was the end of his career mm-hmm. in it. I think you can definitely understand why he would feel that way after watching this. Uh, like I said earlier, it is kind of a sweet film. Yeah. It's got a bit of like a romantic comedy angle to it. Like, uh, mm-hmm. sort of like indecent exposure, except without an insane Georgina Spelvin and her Gothic mansion. <laughs> right. But like you have these two longtime veteran actors who have definitely in all that time developed a sort of chemistry together. You've got like the two like starry ad newcomers who kind of get together, mm-hmm. which is classic rom-com sort of stuff. Uh, I really do like that in this film they chose to make, like, basically porn films are made in Hollywood. It was basically, I kind of think, the kind of worldview there is based on, like, how there's big name recognition and everything. Right. So that's all very cool. I do think there are some limitations that the film hits in that department. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. just maybe for budgetary constraints, because Friedman was kind of notoriously uh, spinthrift on certain things. Sure. Like, because there are some things, I think, that could have been developed a little bit more, like the relationships between the characters. And instead of that, you kind of get Elmo Lavino and Friedman not quite doing exposition, but sort of also kind of saying what should be built up, like, in scenes between the characters. I think there's, like, a point where he's, like, it's like, that Lance don't know how much he likes her. Right. Which is uh, something that I think maybe, like, another scene between them could have been. Perhaps. Uh, and that's a thing. There was a little anecdote in that thing about with Friedman being kind of cheap, where if the script would say, uh, the allies come in a thousand strong with tanks and men, that mean, that would translate to on screen as someone running on screen and saying, the allies are coming. Right. Uh so there's probably a bit of that to it. Sure. But that said, and I think definitely with uh, Pichard's uh, direction and his eye for detail, I think it kind of elevates it above some of the sloppier, cheaper bits of it. Sure. For one, the sex in it, I think, is really erotic, uh, very well shot. It definitely kind of has a feel of like a couple's film in a way. Sure. Like if you were like picking a porn film to go see with your sweetie, this might be high on the list. Yeah. The music is forceful, like I said, but not intrusive. It's just very busy. Yeah. Uh, And it it does accentuate most of the scenes it's in pretty well, so I can't really say anything about it. But it is interesting how prominent it was compared to uh, last week's feature where there was really just a couple musical cues. Right. It really shows like how important uh, a good soundtrack can be to this kind of film. For sure. I think that's really about all I have to say about it. As a final hurrah to the uh, fuck films that we love in the golden age, them all just quitting at the end uh, is very funny. You can't yeah. really think of a better send-off than that. It does kind of wrap a neat little bow on like that idea of like the golden age and like it coming to an end, you know? It's, right. Uh, I mean, it's not like official by any means. Mm-hmm. But if you want to like view it that way, it is kind of like a sort of neat little ending where it kind of or kind of ends where it began with David Friedman just trying to get titties up on screen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I was really impressed by it. I had a very enjoyable time watching it. Uh, I'm going to give it four stars. Okay. All right. So my opinion on this is fairly similar. Um, I really do like this film a lot. There's a lot going on here. Um, Henri Pichard's a great director. Mm -hmm. Um, I would agree with your feeling that it's a good couples film because it is a very fun little love story here in a way. The cast here is really interesting. You know, like we pointed out towards the beginning, it's kind of the uh, crossroads between an older age of pornography and the newer school uh, Mm -hmm. group of actors. So Herschel Savage is still in the earlier days of his career. Yeah, Angel, Um, I think, could probably... This is probably one of her earlier films, I would imagine. This is one of... Well, so... It is one of her earlier films. She's not, like, had a whole lot of time in the industry. There is uh, one of the articles I read. They pointed out that there were a bunch of movies that uh, said Introducing Angel. Yeah, I think we had Uh, talked about that before. (laughs) And uh, this was not her first movie. I think they said that she had made, like, 30 movies before this, but they also gave an Introducing Angel credit to her. So (laughs) uh, there's that. But when you only got one name... Just got to reintroduce yourself a bunch. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And then, of course, uh, John Leslie, of course, continued to be in the business for a long time. Yeah. And I this think, is. I don't know. Did he do much more acting after this, like in front of the camera? Or did he more. Or was that more in the 90s when he got more into the directing? Uh, he continued to make stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did get more into directing as we get beyond this, but. I don't think this is one of his last on-screen right, appearances. No. Now, Jesse St. James, I believe this was her last production. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I don't like getting too superficial and criticizing things. But Jesse St. James in this film, she has lost a lot of weight. Uh-huh. And uh, I feel like she just doesn't benefit from that in this film. Sure. I don't know if she was going through a cocaine phase or if this was just some sort of health kick that she was on, but yeah. she she lacks some of the curviness that uh, she had in prior films that uh, I was drawn to. That said, though, I mean, her performance in this is excellent. Yeah. She does a good job here, and the story's great. And, uh, of course, Angel is amazing looking. She mm-hmm. is perhaps the cutest woman in this age of uh, pornography yeah. like uh, her face is super cute and she is uh, very hot yeah she's a good looking angel I um, like those other angels with all their eyes and wings <laughs> um, so I mean they've got a lot going on there I think that this does a really good job of telling a good story um one thing that you pointed out is kind of how, at a certain point, uh, Cox and Koontz are talking about how uh, Lance and Linda have this chemistry between them, but we haven't seen it really at all at that yeah. point in the film. and like I said, I, I don't want to take any screen time away from Elmo Lavino, but mm-hmm. just one more little like scenic connective tissue I think would have done wonders. I will make an argument, though, in favor of it in this sense. I do appreciate that we get, like, three-quarters of the way into the film before we realize as the audience that they actually do have this chemistry. Sure. I think that that does kind of help a little bit. 
in the sense that like earlier in the film all we get between them is a bunch of contention yeah yeah and um i don't know you could go either way with it because i i could also see the argument for it being something where their uh, chemistry kind of plays into the film along the way throughout it yeah but i did somewhat like the fact that we get to a certain point in the film and it's not until they actually decide to work together and have sex that we actually see on screen that oh wow they actually do have a connection here yeah no that was that was that was a great scene definitely so I mean that that part's good there's a lot of good stuff here and of course you know again praising Henri Pichard uh, he has a good eye for different compositions in his scenes and stuff and he really shows off the sex well and accomplishes the storyline stuff you know at least to the uh, limits of budget and the script concerned right i mean overall this is a great film it is certainly one worth going out of your way to see because it is kind of a one of the last great hurrahs of the golden age of porn mm-hmm. and uh it does a really good job of doing its thing so uh one thing worth noting um that i meant to bring up earlier Originally, Shauna Grant was cast in the role of Daisy oh, Cheney. Yeah, you're. Okay, I remember this. Which is the role that uh, Angel plays in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shauna Grant had, quote unquote, retired from porn some months earlier, and this was going to be her first thing after taking like a year off of porn. Mm-hmm. But uh, she also was having some drug problems. She had become a bit disillusioned with the porn industry, though she was looking to get back into it. She was having relationship problems. And uh, apparently on the day that production was supposed to start, she shot herself and died. That's no good. The production on this film was delayed several months, but eventually, you know, went on with uh, Angel in that role. Right. It's a it's a sad story. Angel is excellent in that role, but Shauna Grant was also great, and obviously it would have been better if, whether or not she was in the film if she was alive when this uh, film came out. I can agree with that broadly. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an easy yeah. thing to agree with. <laughs> Um, and of course, uh, Roberta Finley would go on to use some stock footage she had of her and some footage of other porn industry people to create an incredibly exploitative film called Shauna, Every Man's Fantasy, which uh, in the Rialto Report episode with her, she distinctly said she did not regret making. So, uh, Well, it's one to check out for sure. Yeah, we might check that out. It looks like it's probably the most tasteless film ever made okay well yeah we're definitely gonna watch that one then uh but regardless uh this film is excellent and uh i would give this four stars excellent you're in complete accordance indeed so we'll go ahead and wrap things up because our battery is running out but uh Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Raincoat Report, raincoatreport at gmail.com if you want to contact us. Subscribe to our podcast, rate, review, give tell, us good scores, tell your friends, get more the, people listening. Tell, just tell anyone you meet. If you're on the set giving your screen test to be the next matinee idol, uh, don't forget your raincoat. Yeah. Though they may make you take it off so you can fuck. Yeah. Um you're gonna be on set it's a bunch of people coming don't forget your raincoat 
to protect you from the cum. Oh, yeah. Too much cum. If you're going to get kicked out of a movie theater for jerking off, don't forget your raincoat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.